Urban legends without a doubt make our adolescence interesting. We've all heard the stories and swore up and down that they were true. Perhaps we have even added a little flair ourselves. Which one is your favorite? The hook-handed man who terrorizes teenage couples? Bloody Mary? The person who wakes up bleeding in an ice bath only to discover a note telling them to call an ambulance because their kidneys have been stolen. Or perhaps you prefer a time-honored classic. A young babysitter puts the children to bed for the night. As she prepares to relax on the couch, a stream of terrifying phone calls come in, threatening her life and the lives of the children. The babysitter calls the police and waits on the line as the police trace the calls that have been coming in. Police pause in disbelief as they inform her, the calls are coming from inside the house. But this only happens to the babysitter, right? Our homes are our sanctuary in the chaos, the ultimate safe space. But what happens when you find yourself in your bed warm and comfortable, and suddenly there is a thud? We've all been there, right? Do you go look? No. You trust your home to keep you safe, and it would never betray you. You take a breath, close your eyes, and begin to drift off. Then, the sound of footsteps materializes on your bedroom floor. You cry out, but it's too late. The calls were coming from inside the house. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. <laughs> Fuck you, man. <laughs> we would be dead. <laughs> so good. Keep all of that. <laughs> I'm laughing myself in the hives right now. Oh my God. <laughs> It's okay. <laughs> Look, we're going to talk about nice things now for like one minute. Okay. Guys, I made Leslie cry for the first time. <laughs> and it wasn't because we were like cutting a woman in half or like found bodies in barrels. It was because of an urban legend. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> How do you do with the scream films? Can you not watch them? I, I used to not at first, but then I had a friend tell me that I shouldn't be too nervous because I don't have any psycho friends that would come after me. And that's like the premise of the movie. There was, I guess it was like one, uh-huh. you know, one kind of psycho friend. So she was like, I think you're okay. And I was like, you're right. So then I could watch them. But as I got older, I realized that's not going to save me. That's a good coping <laughs> mechanism, I guess. It I was, mean, this yeah. one is- this is going to fuck you up real hard then. But <laughs> Uh-huh. But we'll yeah. you're going to you're going to be okay. Okay. <laughs> Leslie. No. I mean, I'm I'm crying because I'm laughing so hard out of fear. Okay, Can good. you hear it in my voice? I'm like <laughs> <laughs> Guys, this is going to be a good one. This is a real spooky story. Okay. All Ooh. right. Shake it off. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, Holly. Hey, Leslie. Welcome back, friends. Fiends. Yeah. I I self-corrected that word. Um, I hope we're all continuing to do well, sheltering in place. Leslie looks like she's doing great. So (laughs) good. Not even edgy at all. Nope. (laughs) Not a little bit. Perfect. What's happening? I'm about ready to jump off the roof, but I won't because it would really suck for Leslie if that had to be our last episode. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, campfire stories were a whole lot of fun. Yet again this week, it was really cool to actually uh, get an additional story from one of you guys. That was super fun. I like that a lot. Uh, lots of great input this week. Yep. Um, come back again this Friday for more spooky tales and interesting discussion. Hooray. Uh, so shout outs this week go to uh, our good friend Jason Smith who donated to our cause. <sighs> thank you, Jason. Yeah, thank you, Jason. We love you so much. Any money you guys donate to us goes directly back into the podcast. We pay for streaming services, our host site. We have microphones and headphones to upgrade. We're both wearing our children's headphones. So, <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's something we just talked about like a minute ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we just want a better quality product for all of you, but we can't do it alone. So next week we should have our Patreon site set up. Um, and if you want to make a small monthly donation to help keep We Would Be Dead rolling along, we will be forever in your debt. Any little bit counts. Seriously, like a dollar a month is phenomenal. Uh, and also we have like special things planned for our patrons as they come along. So... You have that little bribe too. <laughs> I would love love to make this podcast a full-time job at some point. Yeah. Leslie and I could sit at my table and eat pad thai and talk about murder, and that would be what we did for a living. It's fantastic. Right? I can make some soap once in a while and it'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's the life that we're we're shooting for. So yeah. <laughs> only you guys can make us happen. <laughs> that's the dream. That and dying as we lived with a normal vagina. Yeah. <laughs> Too small. If, I, it's so small. <laughs> and if you guys don't get that reference, go back and listen to last week's wrap up on the Black Dahlia murder. Because yeah, then you will. <laughs> uh, I would love to say that this week we're talking about a man, but the fact of the matter is that we are not. Daniel Plant committed all of his crimes and was jailed for them before he turned eighteen. So keep that in mind as we. Uh, Roll along. All of this done while he was a kid was was done while he was a kid. Ugh, mushmouth today. His story comes in two parts. Don't worry, we're going to tell them both this week. I always thought that the first half of Daniel's story happened when he was a kid, and then there was a gap before the second half, wherein he had time to like grow up and be an adult. But nope, that wasn't a thing. He was still a kid. But I'm getting my ahead of myself. Shall we start with a spooky story? Can you handle we it already? <laughs> That's how we started the podcast. Oh no! Second well, spooky story. You you get a job first. It's gonna be you're gonna be okay. We'll start by okay. setting the scene. The year is 1986. Leslie, can okay. you tell us about 1986? All right. So in 1986, the big songs were Robert Palmer's "Addicted to Love," Ugh. Kenny Loggins' "Danger Zone." And Madonna's Papa Don't Preach. Oh, good time to be alive. Good music. For sure. So Madonna was super popular then. Um, girls were dressing like Madonna. Uh, there was, uh, especially for their fashion, for preteen and teen girls fashion, anything that was neon, animal print, acid wash, and sometimes a little bit of lace if their parents really didn't care about them. <laughs> <laughs> All that's back and my parents don't care about me now, so I just wear yeah, a lot of lace. there you go. See? <laughs> And if you were really cool, you'd have one of those multicolor swatch watches. Do you mm -hmm. remember those? Yeah, those were all the rage. Um, by the time I got to wear them, they weren't that cool anymore. They were just like thrown at me from my older sister. Just like, here, you can have this. But you were still like, <laughs> okay. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Yay. Um, and then any bright colored scrunchie was super in. Ugh, love um, the scrunchie. I know they're back now. They don't damage your But not like hair. the bright, bright color. Yeah. Uh, the big movies for teens were Ferris Bueller, Top Gun, Pretty in Pink, and The Karate Kid 2. <laughs> the Karate Kid 2. Not one. <laughs> Not two. one, but two. <laughs> Which means that the Tiger Beat heartthrobs were mm -hmm. Rob Lowe, Ralph Macchio, Michael J. Fox, Rick Springfield, and Kirk Cameron. Oh, Kirk Cameron. He's sad now. I know, but just remember him then, and he was so cute. Yeah, when he was Mike Seaver, that was a good time. Yeah. That After was a that? Perfect time. We should go back. Bad time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm on but, board uh, with But yeah, that was basically 1986. Uh, also, the big thing that happened that year was the Hands Across America. Aw, oh, you said it right this time. 
I did. <laughs> America's hands. <laughs> Which is maybe a concert we should have now. I mean, yeah. Wash no, America's hands. So. Wash America's hands. I'm just saying we could be on to something. For sure. <laughs> I don't know. I think I might also still buy a tiger beat with Rob Lowe on it. Uh, yeah, I was looking at those tiger beats. And I was like, oh man, these are the men I grew up with. Because <laughs> I'm still, still, still hunking for them. They're still <laughs> so handsome and so young and skinny looking. <laughs> Probably. <I know. laughs> Jim wasn't real big with some of those in the 80s. No. <laughs> All good. Well, so it's 1986. We're rocking out to Madonna songs, wearing our scrunchies, and we are in Pepperell, Massachusetts, because apparently New England crime is my favorite thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Who knew? Which is surprising because I wholeheartedly believe that most serial killers come from Indiana. Hmm. I say that all the time. There's a lot. We haven't gotten to them yet. Just wait. Yeah. Now I have I to always find think, next week. I always, <laughs> I always think Colorado or like Washington State. Yeah, that's oh, Washington State's a good mm-hmm. one. Yeah. But you know where the most serial killers actually are from? Where? Alaska. Oh. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I mean, when you Even think hard about, about them. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're not as famous, but there's more of them. Okay. <laughs> Go Alaska. So anyway, we're back in Massachusetts today. Pepperell is a small and incredibly sleepy town. Absolutely nothing has gone on there. Literally. I always look up our location. This one is super short, like nothing. One time it had a paper mill when it was first becoming a town. The Revolutionary War went right by it. Didn't touch it. Most of Massachusetts was doing stuff. Not Pepperell. The median family income is currently $97,000 a year, and it houses one of three remaining covered bridges in the state. So I'm going to go ahead and guess that a lot of middle-class white people admire the leaves from their backyard and owed pepperel on a yearly basis. Yeah, there you go. Sounds right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So our story takes us uh, to the home of sisters Annie and Jessica Andrews. And we don't have exact ages on them because a lot of this first story is kind of blurry. Uh, but they were in uh, high school and middle school. So Annie was fifth, like around 15 years old and Jessica was probably 12 or 13. So all those facts were very pertinent to them. Perfect. Uh, they lived with their father, Brian. <clears throat> Annie and Jessica's mother had recently passed away from a battle with cancer. And the girls were really struggling to recover from this tragic blow. One evening, as the girls were passing the time together, the telephone rang. It was a boy calling for Annie. This boy said his name was Danny, and he had seen her at an event in the community somewhere. He had just, like, seen her out and about and was completely taken with her beauty. So he asked her around to find out her name and then looked her up in the phone book because that's a thing you did in 1986 um, because he would never forgive himself if he didn't try to see her again. Aw. The two talked. And he seemed nice enough. Danny told Annie that he was tall, blonde, muscular, and a sports star at a neighboring high school. Now, okay, I know this may be full of red flags for the fully grown catfish-watching adults listening right now who have benefited from years of Chris Hansen telling them that the most faceless, that most faceless voices are pedophiles. But this was 1986, and Annie was 15, And to a lot of teenage girls, this is like an actual fairy tale. (laughs) Being a former teenage girl myself, and Leslie as well, we can tell you that being noticed like that, like being plucked out from a crowd, is not just a dream. It is the dream. It's all I lived for. It's all we all lived for, right? That was like, Mm -hmm. someone's going to see me someday, and I'm going to (laughs) just make their life. Everything. (laughs) I don't know. It just seems like... It seems like the one thing, like, a teenage girl would want. Yeah. There are more TV shows, movies, and young adult novels than you can shake a stick out based around that same situation in one form or another. Mm-hmm. Maybe add, like, a sparkly vampire or something. Still there. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Danny and Annie, ugh, the rhyming isn't even intentional, and it's so gross. Had more than a few nice phone calls before Annie agreed to meet Danny for a date. Annie was nervous and excited. She and Jessica probably spent hours picking out her outfit and going over what she would say to make herself seem interesting and cool, right? Like, Yeah, we 
I'm, I didn't do that. Uh, we all did that. <laughs> I, I bet they agreed that she would like maybe kiss him goodnight if everything went well. And they would marry in the fall and live in a mansion and have five babies or whatever that round of MASH predicted. <laughs> Love MASH. I know. <laughs> this gave me a moment of like, oh, I'm 13 again. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the pair were supposed to get ice cream together at a local shop. Danny would pick her up. And when the doorbell rang, I could just imagine the tingly, nervous energy the sisters shared. Annie ran to the door, anticipating a tall, handsome young man in a letterman jacket. Perhaps in the spring, she would get chilly while he walked her home and he would drape it over her shoulders to keep her warm. It's a dream, right? (laughs) I know, we're both living like a momentary childhood fantasy. Yeah. (laughs) This was shaping up to be the best moment of Annie's life. She took a deep breath. And open the door. And then I imagine like an audible record scratch. Rip! Because if any situation deserves one, it is this one. When Annie opened the door, there was no tall, handsome sports star standing before her. No. There was a greasy bowl cut attached to a thin, slouching, visibly unbathed boy who was barely able to make eye contact with her at first. Which is my luck. That would be what happened to me. (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly what happened to me. Oh, worst. (laughs) The only thing true about this boy was that his name was Danny and he was 15. Danny LaPlante was not the boy Annie had imagined, but she began to feel sorry for him, which I would have 100% too. Like, I identify with these girls so hard. Yeah. She figured that he had lied to her so that she would agree to meet him. That's like the general catfish vibe anyway. They just want people to like go for him so they lie about who they are yeah sure he was a little smelly but he went through all that effort and hey maybe it was nice so she agreed to go forward with the date and they went for ice cream now it would be cool if this was kind of like a say anything lloyd dobler situation where the misfit and sweatpants and a trench coat turns out to be the great love of annie's life i am for that story all about it yeah but that is not what happened (laughs) instead (laughs) Danny would continually ask how Annie's, about Annie's mother's recent death. He wanted to know how painful it was, how long she had suffered, and if Annie was there to watch the light go out of her eyes. So that's oh. not a great date. <laughs> Danny wondered what that might look like. He's a cool kid. Annie finished her ice cream, as most polite girls would, and then went home. Some sources say that this date happened at a local fair, but it doesn't really matter. It's not like she drowns in ice cream or he kills her with the bolts he stole from a -a (laughs) tilt-a-whirl. They just go somewhere together. He's a real fucking creep, and then the date is over. So, shockingly, no second date occurred. But Annie did go home quite shaken and missing her mom. Yeah. I know. It's like, that would be traumatizing. Miss my mom now. Aw. Anyway. (laughs) You can give her a call when we're done. She won't answer, but you know, it's fine. (laughs) Maybe she will. The next night, Annie and her sister decide to try and make contact with their mother in the great beyond. So the girls make their own Ouija board. I feel like you are already hating this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They light a bunch of candles and then they get to asking questions. After watching their makeshift planchette twiddle around the board as the tension released in their fingers, the girls, having gotten no satisfactory responses, gave up and went to bed. Now, some sources say, like, they became afraid later because they didn't say goodbye. They just stopped. And anybody who's Uh used a Ouija board knows that you have to, like, sign off. Mm -hmm. I'm just adding that because it's there. The next day. I'm here for it. Exactly. I for sure played with a Ouija board when I was a teen. Mm Mm-hmm. That was like a sleepover fixture. Sorry, I'm like, I'm like squirming. <laughs> it gets so much worse. Oh no, Leslie. <laughs> so I apologize if my responses are a little. That's all right. You, you squirm all you need to. The next day, after the girls returned from school and before their dad came home, so they got home at like, you know, 3.30 and their dad didn't get, didn't get home till five. They started to hear knocking in the walls. <laughs> the girls suspected it was the spirit of their mother. And to their great surprise, when they asked questions out loud, it began to answer back. So they would say, like, if you're our mom, knock three times, and it would knock three times. The girls tried to tell their father what was happening, but he would have none of it. More little things began to happen. 
In the morning, when the family would wake up, they would find furniture moved into different places. There would be coins mysteriously left in places where the girls would find them. Sometimes little things would go missing. The girls was sure were ooh, the girls were sure this was the spirit of their mother trying to speak to them. Their father was so sure they were doing these things themselves. Then one day, when the girls returned home from school, the knocking started up again. But this time, it seemed to be coming from the basement. Never go in the basement. Have we said Never. that before? Never. Yeah. Don't go in the basement. They just shouldn't is- even make base. They shouldn't even make basements. I know. What's wrong with that? They go there, though. Okay. Oh, Jesus. The girls followed down the dark stairwell, but when they switched on the light, they found a large message on the wall written in what appeared to be blood. It read, I'm in your room. Come find me. (laughs) Oh, no, thank you. No, we're moving. (laughs) Bye. We got to burn down the whole house. The whole house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, no, no. I will not be coming to find you, bloody ghost. With that, the girls ran screaming from their house straight to their neighbor's house where they called the damn cops. Good job, girls. Thank you, ladies. I know. Killing it. That's what you're supposed to do. We always call the damn cops on a ghost that is clearly not your mother. At this point, the girl's father comes home. Like, in the shuffle, dad arrives home. And he's not pleased to see the police arriving at his house. He goes inside to inspect this message with police officers. But as it turns out, the blood was just ketchup. Which... (sighs) Ketchup is a totally different color and consistency than blood. But not everyone is as specifically weird as I am, so I have to come to terms with the fact that maybe it didn't dawn on those girls, and neither did the ketchupy smell that was surely hanging in the air. Because ketchup smells. Well, yeah, but that's still terrifying to walk into. Oh, no, it's still scary, but I think I'd be like, it smells like fucking burgers down here. What the? Okay. And it still would have creeped me out that somebody yeah. did that. No, that would have definitely creeped me out, too. But Yeah. Whatever. Their dad Sorry, is I'm getting mad. <laughs> like, Mur. don't worry. You'll get validated. <laughs> so their dad is furious and he goes to the neighbors to retrieve his sho- sobbing, shaken daughters and tells them that they have to stop playing these kinds of jokes. It isn't funny anymore. He figures they just cannot cope with the death of their mother and sends them into therapy. And you know what? Good for dad, honestly. And here's why. I do not condone not believing your children. If that shit's happening, you should believe your kids and look into it. However, a single dad in the 80s having the foresight to put his troubled children into therapy, that really deserves a little recognition. Yeah. They didn't do it that much then. Yeah, so I'm like on board for dad. And like, if I was their parent, while I would believe them, like it would be a... It'd be a hard sell. You're like, come on, that's, there's ketchup on the wall, guys. Yeah. You know. So the girls are seeing a therapist, but the knocking and the furniture moving is still happening. Until one evening, it all comes to a head. I need you to, like, brace yourself. Okay. <laughs> the family is out somewhere. Where they are is unclear, but again, it doesn't really matter. They were together on an outing, and then they all came home. Perhaps for the sake of a gun-in-the-first-act type situation, they went out for ice cream. Um, the girls went straight up to Annie's room and when they turned on the light another bloody message bloody in quotation marks that you cannot see was waiting for them on the wall it read marry me the girls looked at the strange note in abject horror but before they had the chance to scream a small sound came from the other side of the room the girls turned to look and to their horror They saw a figure standing there in their mother's wedding gown and a scraggly blonde wig. It was Danny. He had also smeared his face with their dead mother's makeup. The girls certainly could scream at this point, and scream they did, while watching Danny raise his hand to show them a hatchet he had been concealing. The girls screamed and ran into their father's bedroom. Their father, still annoyed and not getting it, walked calmly into their room to see what they had cooked up this time. But now, it was clear that they had not been lying at all. Daniel chased their father into his bedroom with the girls, and the three climbed out the window. And once again, the girls ran to a neighbor's house to call the police. I, I hope it was a different neighbor. Because if it was the same neighbor twice, they are definitely scarred for life. Their father watched the house from the neighbor's yard to see if the intruder ran away so he could tell the cops which way to chase him. But he never exited their home. The police arrived and searched the house 
for hours and they found absolutely nothing. Until one of the police officers heard a noise seemingly coming from inside the walls of Annie's bedroom. The officer moved the dresser aside to find an entrance to a crawl space. He opened the crawl space and there, cowering inside the wall, was Daniel LaPlante. You see, Daniel had been living in the walls of the Andrews home this whole time. He had seen their every move, watched Annie undress, do her homework, sleep, and talk on the phone. His hideout contained snacks he pilfered from cabinets, coins, and small objects that had previously gone missing. Daniel was taken away then by the men in white coats, and Mr. Andrews never doubted his daughters again. That's a really crazy story, right? Yeah, that is insane. I mean, if anything's coming from your walls, it's either snakes or a person. So either way, you're screwed. Both are terrible for you. And anybody, but especially for you. Yeah. And it's unbelievably compelling and everybody's worst nightmare. A total urban legend in the making. In fact, there are films that are made based around this story, and I won't. Anyway, two things. One, (laughs) not all of that is true. Okay. Feel a little better? Two. Maybe. It's not even close to the worst thing Daniel LaPlante does in this story. Ah, fuck. Yeah. You see, over the years, Danny has become the villain in his very own urban legend. And I bet, as I was saying, you even heard some version of his story before. It has inspired movies that I will not spoil for you and countless internet creepypasta writers. Now that I have given you the show business ending of the show business end of the Daniel LaPlante story, let's try the true story. And believe me, this one is scarier. I'm going to issue our very first trigger warning in the story too. There are children harmed in this part of the story. Now, I'm not going to give graphic descriptions of injuries or anything like that because if anybody is sensitive to kid stuff, it's me. Um, But I, I understand that it can be a tough listen. So I'm going to tell you when the difficult part is coming up and I will escalate with it. And if you want to hit that little arrow to skip ahead, Leslie, you can't, but if anybody else wants to, um, you're more than welcome to do so. And I totally understand. So I'm here to accurately report events, but not to traumatize anyone or disrespect a victim or their family. So I get it. With that, let's proceed. Daniel J. LaPlante. It always says J, never his full middle name. So he's like Homer J. Simpson, I suppose. Was born on May 15th, 1970. Now, to break the tension, Leslie, why don't you tell us a little bit about 1970? I can do that. So I pulled up some fun kid facts. Yes, because Daniel Um, was a kid. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, So before I get into the kid facts, I'll Mm -hmm. go over some of the big music then. Because the 70s was such a great time for music. Yeah. So the big bands and artists were David Bowie, of course. We love him. There was Fleetwood Mac, the Jackson 5, Led Zeppelin, Joni Mitchell, Queen, the Ramones, Stevie Wonder, and like a countless other people. Oh, it was a good time for music. Yes. It was so good. Um, Some of the toys that the kids would have been playing with then... Uh, were Rubik's Cubes. We have so many of those. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Skateboards. uh, Pet rocks were huge. Blah. (laughs) I know. That was a huge thing. my rock. Yeah. Nice. (laughs) Uh, You know, weebles, as in weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Yep. They do not because they're rounded at the bottom. (laughs) Yeah, that came out in 1971, so those were awesome. Oh, fun. Their uh, Nerf balls were on the market, so they were the first indoor ball. Really? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That Well, that's how they marketed themselves. That's a good fact. I n- never put that together. First mm-hmm. indoor ball. Okay. The Baby Alive doll was created. Mommy, I made a stinky. Ugh, I don't care for Baby Alive. <laughs> Worst. Violet has one, and she calls it Creepy Baby. Yeah, because it is. <laughs> You've probably seen it. It's horrifying. Horrible. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Battleship was a big game. Rock'em Sock'em robots. Uh, Star hey. Wars figurines became big, uh, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then this one I thought was fun. The Simon game. You know, the yeah, actual device the Simon. Mm-hmm. Yep. That was a huge game at Studio 54. What? Yeah. Were people like Wild. just fucked up on drugs and Simon was fun? Yeah. For sure. <laughs> 
<laughs> we had a Simon here for a while. Hmm. Studio 54. <laughs> and then some of the TV shows that would have been big in the 70s for families and kids were Sesame Street, of course. That came in the 70s. Uh, Happy Days was a big one. Uh, Fonzie was like everyone's hero. Oh, I love Happy Days. Mm-hmm. Uh, Super Friends, which was great. That's the DC characters. I am unfamiliar with that one, but I will trust you. Uh, Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. Yes. <laughs> The Electric Company. Will loves The Electric Company. And The Muppet Show. Oh, we all love The Muppet Show. Yeah. Yeah, so those were some family and kids shows. So that's what I got. So this is the environment that Daniel LaPlante is growing up in. Yeah. It's pretty sweet. Like, he should have been cool. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you followed Fonzie. Hey. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) He was not cool. Spoiler alert. Bummer. So they never are. We're in the awesome 1970s and Daniel LaPlante is not living up to his supposed coolness. He was born in 1970 in Townsend, Massachusetts, which is right next to Pepperell. It's like the neighboring town. And it's even smaller and less eventful. So no covered bridge there, guys. Mm. Sorry. Daniel lived with his parents and brothers in a small house. Now, it has been stated that from an early age, Daniel was sexually abused by his biological father. After his early childhood, this biological father seems to just, like, evaporate from information. And in his place appears the word stepfather. So I don't know when the swap happened, but at some point it did. And apparently this guy wasn't, like, great either. In some places, it report it is reported that he also sexually abused him, but in most, it is said that he just physically abused him, which is not better, but it bears repeating. Daniel was slight, and his hygiene was characteristically poor. This will come up time and time again. Apparently, he was filthy. Mm. Yeah, and his parents let him go to school like that, which is pff, less than less than great. I know, but we all know, it just makes me sad because you all know that stinky kid in class. The dirty you kid. Wondered, yeah, you just wonder what, like, what happens at home because you're yeah. like, why does no one else smell him? You don't when you're a kid, though. You're like, that kid's dirty, and that's all you think about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, Daniel was also dyslexic, and because of all of the things we just stated, he was treated awfully at school. This is like a recipe for being bullied. Little guy, yeah. smelly kid, dyslexic. Yep. Not going good for Daniel at school. Daniel's classmates all found him kind of off-putting and unsettling. He was extremely socially inept and was also rumored to um, be the kid that tortured animals. Okay. There yeah, I don't check have mark. A, Yeah, there's so, so there's even more. There's so many check marks about Daniel LaPlante. Um, and the animal thing... I mean, it's listed in a bunch of places, but I don't have any specific stories. And I'm kind of glad because I don't particularly want to read about animals getting hurt. Right. Um, <laughs> which is awful. Everybody has that switch where they're like, murder is fine, but don't hurt the dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a t-shirt waiting to happen. Yep. There you go. Murder is fine, but don't hurt the <laughs> dog. <on> <laughs> Eventually, Daniel's school insisted that he be taken to a psychiatrist. So it was bad. In the 70s, he was sent to a psychiatrist. And his parents, they complied, which is surprising because people that don't give a shit usually don't pay for a psychiatrist, but they made it happen. His psychiatrist diagnosed him with ADHD and then just sexually abused him for a really long time. Oh, fuck. I know. He can't win. He's so bad. Um, Daniel's role models are great. Also, ADHD would explain his impulsivity, Like, kids with ADHD are very impulsive. They can't stop themselves from doing what their brain says to do. They have no filter. Um, But it doesn't explain, like, anything else about Daniel. He is later diagnosed completely differently. But it's clear that the person he was seeing in high school was just, like, a predator. Kids with ADHD can benefit from continued cognitive and behavioral therapy. So this guy probably just picked the least eyebrow-raising disorder that would keep him coming in for appointments which is gross, but probably true. During the time that Daniel was in treatment with this guy, he also sustained a rather significant head injury uh, when he was hit in the head with a lamp at home. Not a lot of detail on that. Somebody threw a lamp at his head and hit him with it, and the psychiatrist stated that he was never the same after that. You know how I feel about head injuries. 
Yes. If you're already somebody like this kid, they're not going to do good things for you. Right, but that's also really convenient for the psychologist to be able to write down. Yeah, but I mean, that one is in several places. Maybe it's not true, but I feel like that can only add insult to injury at this point. Like, he has no reason to be like, oh, hey, that changed him. He already had him. He was already going there. But they didn't do anything to help him. His psychiatrist didn't say, like, take him to the hospital. You have to take him to the hospital. And his parents didn't. They just were like, he's fine. Moving on. Um, So good work there. And it is around this time that Daniel begins to prowl around his town and other neighboring towns, sneaking into homes, stealing small and inconvenient things like TV remotes and rearranging the furniture. He was also known for leaving partially um, consumed beverages, so like half of a glass of something, uh, just out for the homeowner to find. Now, a person does not commit crimes like this to gain any actual material possessions. It is just done to terrorize the home's occupants. Like if you ever, which is the worst. It is the worst. Have you ever seen like those like Facebook things where it's like, oh, list a crime that would only annoy people? He does every single one of those. Take the remote, especially in the seventies. Yeah, I hate this one. Yeah, it's I'm itchy. gonna. I'm gonna leave. You could just finish up here. <laughs> I did warn you. <laughs> but anyway, and the Andrews family was one of um, Daniel's stops. So this is back to the girls that we mentioned in the beginning. He snuck into their home when no one was there and stole a few small things and snooped around. He looked through pictures and the contents of their bedrooms and saw that a pretty girl lived there and he developed a crush on her. Daniel would visit their home and hide in the closets when the family was there. So he was like in a coat closet and stuff. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's still unsettling. There is no confirmation that he catfished Annie or that he lived in their walls. He certainly did not find their dead mother's wedding dress and decide to play dress up in it. But what he did do was pick a time when the family had gone out, grabs his hatchet and painted his face up like a Native American warrior. So he had like the red stripes on his face. Um, Hmm. Like you would see in like a Lone Ranger cartoon or something. Okay, yeah. And then when the Andrews came home, Daniel jumped out of the closet and chased them into a bedroom. The family escaped. Did they did escape through the bedroom window? Like they locked the door and jumped out of the window, and then called the police from their neighbor's home. The police caught Daniel still in the Andrews house and arrested him. He was charged with a host of crimes and sent to a juvenile detention center. So that kind of happened, but not in the like super dramatic way that it's played out. In I want to say ninety percent of the versions of this story you will read. Why did they go? like ham with the story like why did they lie so much uh, why any urban legend like why not make it better okay. once you hear it? it it was widely publicized at one point and people just kind of rolled with it okay and you know what it makes a great fucking story <laughs> like yeah it sure I had to does. change my pants a couple times so <laughs> yeah no i mean they did a good job and it serves its purpose incredibly after this batshit crazy incident, because it's nuts to hide in people's closet and jump out with a hatchet mm-hmm. with war paint on your face. That's crazy. Nobody thought to evaluate Daniel's mental state. Just the crazy neighbor boy. Yeah. <gasps> he was a neighbor boy. Yeah. Oh, shit. How oh, damn. He's, he's the worst neighbor boy. <sighs> he's from the other side. <laughs> he is. Oh, no. I think our whole lives revolve about around neighbor boys at this point. Yeah, they do. <laughs> it all comes back to neighbor boys. Yeah, the neighbor boys. <laughs> so on October 6th, uh, 1987, after just 10 months locked up in this juvenile detention center in uh, Middlesex County, Massachusetts, Daniel was released into the custody of his mother and stepfather, because now the phrase stepfather has taken over, and taken back to Townsend. Now, does anyone think that his time inside cured Daniel of being weird and awful? Anybody? I'm going to guess no. No. No, of course it didn't. Rehabilitation and treatment are absolutely 100% real solutions, especially for minors. But Daniel was basically sent to a room to stew with a bunch of kids who probably also made fun of him for a little under a year, and then he was just sent home. Juvie in the 80s sounds a lot like glorified babysitting for bad kids. Now. 
from the research I have done, juvenile justice centers are a whole lot better now. They seem to emphasize mandatory programs to help kids get back on the right track and get them the help they need. So they're a lot better now. I have nothing against juvenile correction centers, but none of that was offered to Daniel. So at this point, Daniel is back at home with his garbage family, and the only real difference is now that it's no longer 1986. It has ticked over to 1987. Did you say you had 1987 or no? Yeah, you wanted me to break it up a little. I love it. So I got some facts. Right? We need it, right? Yeah, Yeah, I'm feeling it. You see what I I mean? I just wrote down a couple. Okay, so it's 1987 now. Leslie, cheer us up for a hot minute. All right, so the teen heartthrobs in 1987. Love a heartthrob. (laughs) Were Michael J. Fox again. Mm. Kirk Cameron made the list again. Oh my God, they're holding strong. They are. Rivers Phoenix. Oh, River Phoenix. Uh, The two of the girls, I put some girls in there this time. Okay, for the men. Okay. And Molly Ringwald. I figured maybe if he was looking at anybody, that'd be be him. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, And then this is weird because he's still a little old at this point, (laughs) is Bruce Willis. (laughs) (laughs) Was Die Hard in there at some point in time? Is that Uh why? Yeah. Okay, all right. And if... You gotta look up, maybe I'll find it and I'll put it on our page. Please do. I will put the cover of Tiger Beat when Bruce Willis is on there because you can see his crow's feet. <laughs> is he balding too? Is. Yeah, he was he was starting to bald then. So it was just funny because he looks <laughs> he looks like the CEO of the company compared to the rest of the kids. <laughs> it's Kirk Cameron and then also Bruce Willis. Yeah. I'm not going to argue with it because, like, Bruce Willis can get it, but whatever. Yeah. So that cracked me up. <laughs> Die Hard does it to you, apparently. So Sure does. <laughs> this was also the year that Full House aired, which was oh, my TV show. So I got yeah. to start watching that when I was born, which was fun. The second you were born, you were like, I love the second, yeah. Full yeah, House. it would have been a couple more. Uh, well, because I was I was a newborn, and my mm-hmm. mom saw this show, and they brought newborns in, you know, the the Olsen twins. Right, yeah, so she was, like, just, relatable. Yeah, she was, like, not. they were, like, nine months at the time. So they came home with these new babies, and so my mom was like, oh, we'll watch it together. So I watched it every week from the time I was born. You might on. be. Their biggest fan. Thank you for saying that. Because <laughs> you're so welcome. Because I feel that so so hard. Are you like <laughs> it's in your soul right now? Yes. Okay. Good. Okay. Does that make you feel That's... a little better? We talked about the Olsen twins. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Remember they went to Paris. Oh, our lips are sealed. They went to Australia and that. And their one. boyfriends were like thirty. Oh. <laughs> Not in our lips are sealed. They were they were cute little. Okay, some of them were boys. Old. Yeah, <laughs> it was Bruce Willis anyway. in one of the movies. <laughs> <laughs> he was yeah. Mary Kate's CEO boyfriend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a fun diversion. <laughs> so, what's actually happening in 1987? All right. Well, it's darker. Obviously, Daniel is quickly back to his old habits. His parents didn't notice them before, so why would they think to notice them now? Um, Daniel should have been, I believe, a senior, possibly a junior in high school at this point, but there is no reports on him returning to school after the lockup. They just brought him home. Hmm. He did, however, lurk around, steal weird shit, and leave out half-consumed... beers in a bunch of houses. So he upgraded from like sodas to beers. He's grown up now. Yeah. Right. This house, no, the house, this, however, sorry, quickly became not satisfying enough for Daniel. Cause of course one has to escalate on October 14th, 1987, between 12 PM and 2 15 PM, someone broke into 38 Elm street, which was the home of a man named Raymond Pindell and his family. Two Ruger 22 caliber handguns and their holsters and a sizable amount of cash were stolen. Now, at this point, <laughs> this is a fun story. Daniel's brother, Stephen LaPlante, and a friend of his report that Daniel had asked them for bullets because apparently they owned guns. And does that really surprise anybody? 
No. no. Daniel told them he wanted bullets. He like kept asking them for bullets and he said he wanted them so he could melt them down and make one big giant bullet and then sell it. Oh my God. But that sounds like such a kid thing to say. I know. <laughs> Ask him how a big lump of melted metal worked for Elmer McCurdy. Not well. Oh boy. I know. Um, so we're just going to take that for what it's worth. They also reported, so his brother also reported that an unemployed Daniel seemed to be awfully flush with cash all of a sudden. Eventually they relented and they just gave him some bullets to make his super bullet. I guess anyone looking to do something that dumb they figured could be just foolishly and harmless, foolish and harmless. They're like, oh, that's a dumb kid thing to do. Whatever, take some bullets. <laughs> you crazy kids. <laughs> <laughs> so Daniel was really anything but that, but I mean, how could they know? It's not like he was in juvenile hall for crazy crimes. No, yeah. Mm. Oh, wait. Oh, but he, he was. was. So during his streak of break-ins, Daniel had hit the home of Andrew and Priscilla Gustafson. Andrew was a local lawyer, Priscilla was a preschool teacher, and the couple had two children, Abigail, who was seven, and William, who was five. Priscilla was also three months pregnant with their third child. On November 16th, 1987, between 11.30 a.m. and 3.30 p.m., someone broke into the Gustafson home. Among other things, the thief took a cordless telephone, two cable television boxes, a cable television remote control, and some coins from a Liberty Silver Dollar collection. Now, none of these things are particularly valuable, but this is Daniel's MO. They're just inconvenient. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, that would piss me off so much. I know. You're like, where's my fucking collection of silver dollars in the remote? Like, that's... Yeah. And the cordless phone? Oh, yeah, God. it's just stuff that's going to really make you mad, and you're going to look at for it for, like, ever. Mm-hmm. And, like, yelling at the other members in the family to uh-huh. be like, I told you to hang up the cordless phone when you were done. God damn now it, where's where did the you remote? put it? Yeah. It's, yeah. You're, you're totally right. So, again, none of these things were super valuable, but the incident was unsettling enough to keep Andrew Gustafson on edge. And I think we established that, like, all of us would be on edge. Because, like, you feel crazy. Nobody steals a remote and a phone. You just I'm lose them. I'm never going to be okay now every time I can't find the remote. <laughs> Probably somebody's in your closet. Mm. Oh, my God. (laughs) They're not. Your closet's fine. Fine. We have so many closets, Holly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. Well, on December 1st, 1987, Andrew Gustafson kissed his wife and children goodbye and went to work. Andrew decided to call home to check in with everybody around 3.30 or 4 o'clock, a time at which all three of them should have been home as school had ended for the day. And Priscilla usually left preschool, brought William home, and Abigail would walk home from the bus stop to meet them. But today, the phone rang off the hook. Andrew immediately felt panicked. This was highly unusual. He would continue to call, and there was no answer. Finally, Andrew packed up his things for the day and headed home. This was around 5 o'clock. When he got there, he saw that Priscilla's car was in the driveway and all the lights in the house were off. Now, it's December in Massachusetts at 5 o'clock, so it's dark out. Um, now, this is my, my first skip-ahead warning. So if you're going to feel sensitive about some stuff, skip ahead. There's another one, like a super warning coming up later, just in case you decide to continue to listen, but then you want to back out. So, it gets a little rough. Andrew entered his home and called out to his family, but nobody answered. He searched around and eventually flipped on the lights in his bedroom. There he saw his wife face down on the bed. She had a pillow over her head, and in the middle of the pillow was a bullet hole. Her skin was gray, and Andrew knew she was dead. He called the police right away, and when they arrived, they asked him where his children were, and he said he didn't know. They asked him why he didn't look for them, and his reply was that he didn't want to find them dead. Yeah. Can't really blame him. Oh, man. None of us know how we would react in that situation, and sparing himself the sight of his children dead is something that, like, having the foresight to think of is actually pretty good. But uh, he was, he, he couldn't bear that thought. So this is where you get your super warning. This is my second warning. If you cannot handle kid stuff, I need you to skip ahead. Okay? 
so he was right to feel this way. Authorities located the body of William Gustafson in a bathtub. He had been drowned and the water was drained, so he was just left in the empty bathtub. Abigail was found in the home's other bathtub. She was also drowned and located in a drained tub, but appeared to have put up a fight. Detectives expect this is because she walked home from the school bus and got there after they had the attack had already begun, and therefore she had the time and presence of mind to fight. Abigail had received injuries consistent with strangling and blunt force trauma to the head. The drowning, though, had ultimately been her cause of death. Oh, man. I know. And that is all I'm going to say about, like, the kids. I, I'm not, mm-hmm. I don't get into that, if at all possible to not. Priscilla, the mom, had ligature marks on her wrist and had been raped. There was semen present on her body, on the corner of the bed, and on a condom located at the foot of the bed. A brown sock with saliva on it, most likely used as a gag, was found on the scene as well as a necktie and a length of cut stockings. Most likely these were the makeshift ligatures that were used to tie her up. Torn pieces of a pornographic magazine were located in the kitchen wastebasket and Priscilla had been shot point blank in the head. The pillow was probably used to silence the sound of the gun. Police searched the local records to see like what kind of criminals might be hanging around the neighborhood. And it wasn't long before they came across Daniel LaPlante. The next day, a 32 caliber handgun was discovered stolen from a home in the neighboring Pepperell, which we already know he has been to, and it is the crown jewel of the Covered Bridge community. Authorities arrive at the LaPlante home at around the same time, where Daniel's brother and his brother's friend, who is mentioned in all of these, um, told authorities that he had Daniel had left early that morning. The boys were, however, only too happy to help the police search for evidence. Daniel's brother, Stephen, confirms the clothing that Daniel wore on the day of the murder. So he said, okay, well, when he left the day before, he was wearing a blue and gray flannel shirt and gray sweatpants. And authorities were able to find that clothing in the house. His brother, Stephen, also eventually locates the murder weapon in the glove compartment of a car that Daniel had used, which was parked in the LaPlante's yard. So I feel like maybe they were one of those houses that had like six cars just hanging out. I feel yeah. like we, we all know those houses. Yep. Um, the police were also able to locate all the stolen items from the Gustafson home in Daniel LaPlante's like, room and in his house hidden. So they found the remotes and the cordless phones and stuff. Oh, thank God. <sighs> I know. <laughs> feel better now. Yeah. Meanwhile, Daniel had broken into a second home while they're doing this. He's still on the run in like the Pepperell area. And he broke into a home and just, like, dicked around. And then he unsuccessfully tried to break into a third home. When he, and when he couldn't force his way in, the, he forced the resident, the person who lived there, at gunpoint to drive him away. He was like, get in the car, drive me away. That's nuts. Um, and at one point, the person driving just jumped out of the door of their moving van. I would have totally done that. It was That's Bruce Willis. <laughs> <laughs> It might as well have been, right? Yeah, for sure. You're driving full speed down the road and then you just tuck and roll out of the door. Yeah, tuck and roll. <laughs> tuck and roll, man. Remember that? Yep. That would have been you. You would have been like, bye. Yeah, the whole time I would have been thinking of like, all right, can I tuck and roll out of this out of this jaunt? <laughs> did you say this jaunt? I did, this jaunt. <laughs> okay, checking in. Checking in with the young people slang. Is it though? No, it's not. (laughs) I always give you credit for being the young people though. (laughs) So, person tucks and rolls out of the car. Daniel just slides into the driver's seat, closes the door, and keeps driving. Maybe he's Bruce Willis. Yeah. Yeah. So, or who would that have been in Speed? Or Uh, Speed is beyond this, I think. Mm. I don't know. I think he's Bruce Willis. Okay. Except for that's not the bad guy. Who's the bad guy? I don't know. Okay. You guys will tell us, I'm sure. Um, so authorities are still looking for Daniel, and they eventually find him hiding in an Iyer Industrial Park dumpster. So he's just like, oh, I gotta hide! And he parks and jumps in a dumpster. Okay. He's not Bruce Willis anymore. No. <laughs> now he's just garbage. <laughs> oh! Thank you. That's a good one. Thank you. 
So they cuff him and they bring him in. And when they get him into the station, they find that he snuck the 32 caliber handgun in with him in his underpants. Okay. Yeah. So he's like, I have this crotch gun. You guys should probably take it. He surrendered it at the police station. So he was like, yeah, sorry. Um, Now, there is more than enough evidence to convict Daniel. He was in possession of the murder weapon. His semen was found at the the scene of the crime. His footprints His footprints were found in the Gustafson's flower garden. Fibers from the clothing detectives had gathered from Daniel's home matched fibers found on the body of Priscilla Gustafson. This was a slam dunk for the prosecution, right? The only problem was, at the time of the crimes, Daniel was 17, which I told you you would forget. I I did not. You didn't? Good job. Because every time I come back to that, I'm like, he's older. What? He's a kid? Like, I can't. My brain will not, like, formulate thoughts that let him be 17 when he does that. I don't know why. Um, yeah. But so, so technically, he's a child. Now, Daniel never has, and he's still alive, offered an explanation for his crimes and has and remained for a long time unrepentant. He was like, yeah, whatever. Not sorry, just worse. The judge ordered him to be tried as an adult, and he was given three consecutive life sentences. Now, Daniel would go on to appeal his sentence several times. He also asked the police, he like complained about prison a lot because he was like, oh, I'm a Satanist and I uh, I don't have things to worship. <laughs> That's just a dick move. Yeah. The police were like, shut up. You don't get anything. Get out of here. Also, Satanists don't really, real ones don't really need a whole lot, but whatever. Maybe we'll talk about Anton LaVey one day. Aren't they just like humanists? Now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it has like kind of a weird patchy history, but they basically are just anti-Catholics. Yeah. They're like the opposite. Yeah. And they they believe that like doing you should just do what you what is true to yourself. Like if your brain says you mm-hmm. should do this, they think you should do it. Right. Yeah. It's free full free will. Right. I have nothing to be honest, I don't have anything against Satanists. Their principles mm-hmm. make sense to a lot of things, but that's neither here nor there. I just think it's an interesting fact about Daniel LaPlante. He was like, I need my religion that I suddenly decided I had. Yeah. He also appealed his crimes on the grounds that he was a minor at the times of the at the time of the crimes, and so he didn't have a fully formed brain. And there is science behind that. Teens do not yet grasp the full reality of their actions or the consequences. Just like a child can accidentally squish a bug and then cry in surprise when the bug is dead, so too can a teenager do something serious and only later realize the gravity of the consequence of their actions. That's that. It's true, though. Teenagers don't get it. They could do something super... That's why they are so impulsive and dumb. They'd be like, I got super drunk, and then I drove somewhere, and it was fine. No, it wasn't fine. Well, it's one thing for them to believe in their immortality. Right. You know, that's, like, one thing. But for this, I mean, I I don't know what you're about to say after this. Don't worry. That's insane. That's stupid. You're going to feel justified. Don't worry. Okay. (laughs) I'm just presenting that because for some... In some cases, it is a valid thing to do. In some cases, there are teens that, like, I don't know that will ever kill kill them, Jesus, that will ever cover them because I find them incredibly painful to listen to. But there are, like, teenagers who didn't have a huge grasp on reality and killed their parents, and they... They are um, they grieve so hard because they just didn't understand that what they did was permanent. Their brain right. was just not wired to do it. It was mm-hmm. an act of like, I wonder what it would be like if, poof, and then they don't have their parents anymore and they can't, like, they just can't comprehend that it's forever. Right. So I, I believe that and science backs it up hard. But mm-hmm. I'm not saying that was the case with this guy. I'm just saying that it is the case with some people. And Daniel even came up for parole later because Massachusetts court rule, uh, their court rulings found that young offenders should be given a chance at freedom because the juvenile brain isn't fully developed. So it become like, it's, it's not legal to sentence a, a minor to life anymore because they yeah. think that there is the possibility for them to be rehabilitated and there's no way they could possibly have processed their actions. And again, this would be fully plausible if Daniel's crimes weren't so abundant and carefully planned. 
Several noted psychologists have stated that they believe that Daniel LaPlante is exactly where he belongs. In 2017, Daniel appealed in court weeping and apologizing, but it was far too little too late. Daniel was diagnosed in 2017 and probably before then as well, but this is the record I have, with antisocial personality disorder. Now, this is a close cousin of borderline personality disorder, which is like a serial killer's best friend. There are so, so many serial killers that are diagnosed with BPD. Mm-hmm. Um, according to the DSM-5, features of antisocial personality disorder include violation of physical or emotional rights of others, lack of stability in job and home life, irritability and aggression, lack of remorse, constant irresponsibility, recklessness, impulsivity, deceitfulness, and a childhood diagnosis of symptoms consistent with a conduct disorder. And if this isn't Daniel, then I don't fucking know what is at this point. He checks every box. Yeah. So that psychiatrist or psychologist was very correct. Um, Psychologists, several noted psychologists testify that his crocodile tears in court were absolutely there as a manipulative device to try and get the chance of parole. And if it was given Daniel and Daniel was released, this would happen again for sure is what all psychologists Mm -hmm. said. And, fortunately, the judge agreed. Daniel LaPlante will most likely remain in jail for the rest of his natural life. Oh, thank you so much. That (laughs) is the story of Daniel LaPlante. Do you know what happened to his um, original psychologist? No. No, and that's a psychiatrist, too. That's like a medical doctor. So they should have seen consequences. Fiends, go search for us. Yeah. I, as yeah. f- from from everything I can read, there's no name on that guy, and they got this information from from Daniel himself. So, oh, okay. I don't know how much of it actually happened because anything about his past is him is coming yeah. from him most likely. Wow. So yeah, that's a, that's a crazy story, right? <laughs> that was crazy. the The first half really shook me up. <laughs> Did you feel a little better when I told you it wasn't totally real? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, but it's still... It's still real enough. I know. Yeah. Yeah, this one was crazy. And I was telling Leslie before we were recording that originally, I really only knew that first half of this story. Mm. And I was going to tell it as a campfire story. I was like, oh, this is like a spooky urban legend story. The guy lives in the walls. Ah!" But then I started doing research and I realized I didn't, I wasn't super familiar with the second act of it. And then I was mm-hmm. took wild fucking ride. <laughs> wow. Into some crazy, crazy court documents because the court documents that are like the most accessible are not ones from his original trial, but from like all of his copious appeals where he mm-hmm. tried to say things like, oh, but like, you know, the evidence you recovered is just damaging because I lived in a house that with a lot of people and it could have been my brother. No, it wasn't. Yeah. Get out of here. He grasped it like every straw. So there's records of all of that. So that's that's my story. Um wow. I'm like speechless. I know. It's a it's, and there's if you guys liked this story, and I know like is like a weird word to use with it, but if you found it fascinating, there is a lot of coverage on it. Like there are mm-hmm. other podcasts. Um Investigation Discovery has an episode of like the scariest thing that ever happened or whatever the name of the show is, just Google Daniel LaPlante. You can watch it, act it out. Like there's, there's more, there's definitely more. Um, but the stuff that I presented as facts are stuff that things that can be backed up absolutely as facts. Okay. And if I'm wrong, please, you can feel free to tell me, but from what I can find from court records from Middlesex, Massachusetts and other stuff, this is, this is like, what actually happened. And and honestly, I think the real story is bad enough. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't need the other stuff. Mm-mm. So no. it's, it's hard to find a toast this week. Um, I, I had one. Okay. Yeah. I want to toast to the, uh, victims fathers. Okay. Because the both the dads and this is a tough week for dads. 
Yeah, but it was like both those dads were like champs. Like they listened to their daughters, yeah. you know. Yeah, eventually. And kind of went sure. with it even mm-hmm. when they didn't really believe. And then um and then the second dad, you know, just he he called and called the house and knew something was up, so he went home. He also is a survivor of something I can't even imagine mm-hmm. living through. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. All right, so to, to dads this week. To dads. To uh, Andrew Gustafson, and his name is Brian Andrews. Ooh, there's Andrews everywhere in this case. Okay. Hmm. Cheers. Cheers, boys. Cheers. Clink. Clink. <laughs> um, oh, and it's hard to do a wrap-up for this one because it ends on such a somber note. But I suppose if um, if we lived in Pepperell, Massachusetts in the mid-'80s, and uh, clearly... We were the same kind of teenage girls that we mentioned in this story. And we trusted a boy that called us and made us feel special. We would be dead. We would be dead. Yeah. If anything <laughs> was sounding in my wall, I would be dead. Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. Woo! But you would leave the house, right? Yeah. We would be like, I don't even, we don't even need to find out what it was. Yeah. We're gone. And then. Bye. Bye. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> thank you for listening to the we would be dead podcast hit subscribe now to never miss an episode rate and review our show on itunes follow us on facebook instagram and twitter at would be dead pod and join our facebook group to discuss the podcast and more We would be dead. (laughs) So good. Keep all of that. I'm laughing myself in the hives right now. Oh my God.